you'll all join me in prayer. Almighty Father, we are so blessed to come before you on this Sabbath day as we honor you as the great redeemer as well as creator of this world. We pray that your guidance will be here this day as we reach out with your words that many would be edified and learn and that our words here would be pleasing to you. We pray that you'll be with those that have special need, those that are suffering this day, who have asked for a special prayer, that you would be their Yahweh Rapha. We also ask for your guidance on the coming weeks as we prepare for the next one of your holy days. We know these are established by you and are our obligation. So we ask this prayer in Yahshua's name. Hallelujah. You may be seated. I want to welcome everyone, including our guests all the way from Springfield. Glad to have you here. Well, here we are still basking in the afterglow of the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread. You know, Yahweh's feasts are spiritually uplifting, and you don't understand it until you keep one or two or three. And the more you do, the more you want more. Best of all, Yahweh will bless you for observing these days because they are a blessing. There's something about them that uh, nothing in the world can compare. You know, Yahweh's days are, two of them anyway, are week-long observances, whereas man's observances are like one day. And that's it. They come and go, and the big letdown. We all know what I'm talking about. But uh, in the 20 years of our existence, we followed these days. We followed the biblical calendar that marks these days off. And uh, find that Abib, the green ears, were discovered. And that uh, the word actually is the Abib. It's a definition of a specific stage of barley more than just a name of a month. It's really the only name given in the scriptures in the Hebrew of uh, months. Tender green ears of grain. It's the only criterion which we have for the first month. So here we are now counting out down the, the next holy days. We're told to add from the time of the wave sheaf during the Feast of Unleavened Bread count seven complete weeks. Seven times seven plus one gives us 50, which is where we get the Greek word Pentecost, 50th. But uh, we come down from the weekly Sabbath because Exodus 9 tells us you count from Shabbat, 7676, not the high day Sabbath as some do and as the Jews do and if you count by the high day Sabbath, you end up with Sivan 6 every time. Why even count it? Yahweh has his ways. He has his days, and you have to count complete weeks, and you won't have that. Complete weeks if you're going by the high day. So that's why we do it this way. We don't have to add a 13th month. People ask, what about the 13th month? Abib takes care of that. The green ear barley takes care of that. It's self-correcting. We don't have to worry about it. So Yahweh has his plan. He makes it simple. His calendar is simple. Just follow it. And these agrarian people, these Israel, Israelis, Israelites out there, are agricultural people, and they know. You know, they, they deal with the crops, so they would know when it was. He didn't say, you know, they weren't astronomers. Israel, grab all your telescopes and let's go out to look at the stars and the sun. No, all you do is look at the, 
the Abbey fruit where they were working and every day see what's, uh, how things progress. Exodus 23.15 reads, You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, as I command you, in the time appointed of the month Abib, Moed Kodesh, for in it you came out from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. Well, since the calendar is now in play, we've been asked, uh, so how do we then proceed? Well, he, he lays it all out, Exodus 12, 23, Leviticus 23, he lays out how to count the feast days. They were kept by Israel, they are kept today, and they're going to be kept in the coming kingdom. We've always asked, well, if they're that important, we're kept anciently, but not today, but they're going to be kept in the kingdom. Does that make any sense? Now, Yasha says, I'm not going to have the Passover again with you until we keep it together in the kingdom. So they're not abolished, they're there. They're there for us. And they will be kept perennially, I think, for the rest of eternity. Because whatever Yahweh starts, he continues on. He doesn't cut it off when he commands a day to be kept. Well, my message today is how Yahshua defeated his rivals in open confrontation. You know, they hated they hated him. They hated him for what he said. They hated him for what he came for. They hated him. I'm talking about the Pharisees and Sadducees. I'm talking about the, the average person. He didn't know. He was fascinated by him, following him around. This guy could do miracles. He could raise people from the dead, make people see. Uh, man, this, this is something else. They were fascinated by him, and that's another reason they hated him, because he was popular. You go to the seashore, and you get crowds, thousands of crowds, people coming to, you know, come together to see him and hear him speak, except for the Sadducees and Pharisees. They stood back in a corner and, man, how do we get rid of this guy? He's too popular. He's taken our jobs. Were they just arrogant, naive, or ignorant? I've often wondered about that. These, uh, how would you like to go head-to-head -head and debate with Yahshua the Messiah? Your very judge is going to determine your future salvation. And everything you say to him could impact that salvation. How would you like to do that? What a terrifying prospect to challenge an open debate, the one who's going to determine your ultimate end goal. I once heard a self-important defendant in court tell the female judge he wanted a male judge. I thought... How stupid to say something like that. Putting down your judge before you even start, the one who can decide the case, and you're putting the judge down. Well, it's too bad the religious leaders of Yasha were, were so obtuse to realize the consequences of attacking the judge at his every statement. You'd think that seeing their Polemics get soundly defeated time after time after time. They'd finally say, it's useless. We can't beat him. We can't beat him. That didn't stop these knuckleheads. You know, as the old automobile safety commercial used to say, you can learn a lot from a dummy. And I remember some guy telling me, you know, I don't need to hear anybody's sermons. I know it all. 
And I got to thinking, even if you know it all, you could learn something about what not to say, what not to do by whatever example is being shown you. You know, you can always learn something. And typically when you get into the scriptures, if you're like me, you learn something every time. We go to the Bible studies, and we dig deep into it, and we learn something every time. Somebody has a different view on something. You put the pieces together, and you say, oh, how about that? I never knew that. We hear that a lot down in the Bible studies. We hear that a lot. In Matthew 23, Yahshua soundly excoriated these Pharisees who were misleading the innocent, and that's, I think, what really irritated him the most. They knew better. They knew better. And yet... They continued preaching lies to them. And that, to me, that, that, that's the ultimate. That's the ultimate in something that needs attention, something that needs some a severe uh, correction. They already had their reward of earthly glory. Yasha said, you're not going to see everlasting life unless, unless you're... Righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Um, you're not going to see the kingdom, which means they're not going to see the kingdom. You know, when he, uh, the parable of the Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man represented the Pharisees who were in mental agony because they were shut out of the kingdom. They weren't in hellfire. All they wanted was a little water to dip their... Their tongue, because they were in mental anguish. You know, when you get, you get really upset and stuff, sometimes your mouth goes dry. That's where this guy, this rich man was. He was in mental anguish because he was shut out of the kingdom. He said just before that, you shall in no wise, in no case, enter the kingdom of heaven. So he tells us our righteousness is required for salvation. We can take that much from it as well. I mean, who could outrighteous a righteous Pharisee? Who, 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 who could outrighteous him? Isn't that impossible? Think about it. When it came to the law, these guys were impeccable. They tied not only of their complete crop, they tied of the mint, the anise, the cumin, all of these little herbs and stuff. They were doing their picking, you know, counting them all up. Okay, 10, 10%, that goes there. There's another one. And they, then they bring it to uh, the temple. They tithed of every little thing. They had to be perfect, right? And the people would look at them, wow. Wow, holy man, look at that. They're, they're, they're tithing of everything. I mean, they, they don't miss a thing. They obeyed to the finite, ultimate detail. They even tithe of the minutia. And Yahshua said they, don't, they have no prospect for the kingdom. Weren't they the last word in law-keeping? Didn't Yahshua say when they sit in Moses' seat, listen to what they say, do what they tell you to do? Sure he did, because they were preaching the law. That's what Moses' seat meant. You can go to Israel and you see that. Usually at the back of a, of a meeting place, they had this little stone seat there. That was called Moses' seat. That's where they, they would sit and they would uh, give uh, a little sermon, whatever they did. And uh, he said when they, when they speak from Moses, the law that Moses handed down from Yahweh, then listen to them. But don't do as they do. And there, therein lies the 
whole center of the whole problem, the whole crux of it. They miss the point entirely. For them, obeying the statues was all about becoming superheroes in the eyes of people. Look at us. We're on top. Listen to us. We decide. We're the government. So the, the Sadducees were the priestly caste. The Pharisees were the majority of the priests and so forth. But the Sadducees uh, worked in the temple. They were the temple guys. They had invented their own private religion. They parlayed their beloved rituals into their own rulership system. You see, now it makes sense when Yasha comes along and demolishes all of that. Now it makes sense why they were so upset with him. They had their own thing going. And he came in not just rocking the boat, he threw a grenade into it. In their hearts, they were right. But their hearts, in actuality, were stone cold. Do what they say in teaching Yahweh's laws, he said, but don't do as they do because they're hypocrites. Here's the key. All that ritual law observance was just showmanship. It was superficial. It didn't come close to the reaching down into the heart, which is what obedience does when you obey Yahweh. It reaches down and changes you. It didn't change them. They were up here on surface level. They didn't, they didn't take anything too hard. All their supercilious bluster and their phony religiosity meant nothing toward changing the inner man. If it did, they would have been completely different people. All they had was a big hollow zero. And that's why Yahshua said, do what the law says when they teach the law, but don't do like they do because they don't comprehend the purpose of obedience to begin with. Or if they did, they ignored it and they shut it out. You ever talk with somebody about the truth? You can see the eyes glaze over. They're listening, but they're not listening. It just right over their head. They don't, they're not there. They've already decided they're not going to listen. They're not going to do what you're, or hear what you're saying. That's what they would do. They could, I mean, can imagine a boy going into the synagogue and debating with the PhDs. What he said had to have been heard, had to have been understood, but it wasn't what they wanted to hear, so they shut it out. They had to have been amazed. They said, how, is he, how, how, how does he know this stuff? You know? He didn't even go with his folks. He turned around, went back to the synagogue, and wanted to debate with the, uh, the biggies. That would have been amazing. I would, you know, if there's one person I'd love to hear talk would be Yasha the Messiah. Can you imagine listening to him? I mean, we've got some examples coming up. But they did their deeds to be noticed of men. They loved the place of honor at the banquets. They loved the chief seats in the synagogue and all the Moses seats and all that. They loved respectful greetings in the marketplace. Oh, holy one, you're so great. The religious leaders completely missed the essence of Psalms 19, 7 to 8. That's the other great law psalm. You know, 119 is the great one. 19 is the other one, which says the law of Yahweh is perfect, converting the soul. That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to convert you, change you. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. 
The statutes of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. Ever seen a happy Pharisee? I haven't. They're down there looking their nose, you know, or they got their chin in the air. They don't have any time to be happy. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. Ask your law-loathing friends after reading this to explain why the law is so bad, why you hate it so much, why you make all sorts of assumptions. Oh, you're just trying to be better than everybody else. Where do you get that? I mean, there may be some people that do that, but that's the common response for everybody. You hear it all the time. Who do you think you are? Those who criticize obedience think... uh, that other people are doing it so they could be better than you, holier than thou. You know, biblical law is the code of ethics. When you analyze it, and I've looked at this over the many, many decades, the biblical law is the ethics that Yahweh lives by, pure and simple. There's a definition you can take to the bank. It's the code that he lives by. He wants you to have the same code. That's all. That's all. It converts the soul. It opens up wisdom. It rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes. It's great, and you feel good when you get in line with it. It's humbling. Oh, yeah, he wants us to be humble. He doesn't like the arrogance. If arrogance is not number one evil in in man's heart, it's way ahead of whatever's in second place. You know, no transformation of heart and mind happened in the Pharisee and the Sadducee. Bottom line. Therefore, what's Yahshua's verdict? They'll be shut out of the kingdom. He can't use them. Hard-hearted. Have no use for that. I can't get through to them. They're stubborn. They're high-minded. They're conceited. They're narcissistic. They're self-righteous. They're self-indulgent, uncaring, unfeeling toward everyone else. What could you do with a person like that? Unless that heart's changed, there's nothing you can do. We all have seen versions of these guys. It's sad to see it, but bottom line is they're in love with themselves. Joshua had a huge problem with the haughty leadership of his day. But you know, he would never sit down with an insincere one and talk to him. If he came to him and said, I want to know something. Look at Nicodemus, John 3. He comes to Yahshua at night. Pharisee didn't want his friends to see him coming to Yahshua. Oh, my goodness. So he comes to him at night and wants to know more, which was indicative of his sincerity as well as his fear of the consequences. He knew. He knew what would happen if his companions saw him. Yahshua's religious antagonists feared him because his popularity was so great. He was able to perform amazing miracles. And the big one, he claimed to be the coming king. That's what really got him. That was the kicker because it impacted directly their whole reason for living. He shook their world like an earthquake. And the hatred that they had for him was unbelievable. You know, the common person, the resident of Galilee, held no animosity or prejudice because he had nothing to lose. He had no dog in the fight, as they say. Not even some of the officials he encountered held any hostility. 
You know what I've also found? Maybe you've seen it too. The ones who are most hostile are not the guy out in the street that doesn't know anything. He stops and listens. I was talking to the guy that came and brought our backhoe back one day, and uh, he was asking me about uh, some prophecy. I was talking to him about it, and uh, he was listening very intently. He had heard something. You know, he wasn't well-versed, so he wanted to know more. That's not the case for others who are supposed to be Bible teachers, Bible believers, Bible, you know. They don't like the uh, differing opinion. And that's, that's sad because that closes your mind to truth. You know, we always tell people, we don't know everything. If we know something that, or if, you're do, if you know something that we're not doing and we've, you know, you're sincere, we'll look at it. If we're wrong, we'll change it. We have changed on a few things. Nothing really salvational, but we've changed over the years because we saw it better. Nobody has it perfect. Anyway, uh, in John 7, the Pharisees commanded the temple guards to go arrest Yahshua. But they turned, returned without him. Hey, where is he? Um, you know what? That guy spoke like nothing we've ever heard before. They were so bowled over that they forgot to get him, I guess. I don't know what. They didn't know what to do. No, we didn't, we didn't get him. But, man, you ought to hurt, hurt him. We never heard anybody speak this way. That's not exactly what they wanted to hear. They weren't the only ones to notice the commanding way Yahshua spoke. Matthew 7, 28, we read, And it came to pass when Yahshua had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. That means the teachers of the law. He taught with standalone independence. He taught with authority. He didn't have to say, well, now the rabbis teach, or our Torah says, or our uh, Talmud I should say, says. He didn't. He just told him the way it was. And I'm sure he says, my father says. And that really irritated many people. The Jewish elite like to quote their own traditions, as they still do today. You get into some of these reference books and you look at something doctrinal, you know, something maybe in the Old Testament, and they'll quote their tradition. They'll quote their, the rabbi such and such of 1800 said, I don't need that. I need the Bible. You know, Yasha always went straight to the word. He quoted from 24 Old Testament books in his ministry. His apostles quoted the Old Testament 209 times. The New Testament directly quotes the Old 263 times. And if you include references as well as quotations, the number is over 2,600 times. What does that tell us? What does that tell us? It means one-third of the New Testament is Old Testament. And yet they'll tell you the Old Testament is defunct. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to, you don't have to concern yourself with it. I mean, you can read a nice, cute little story about David, Goliath, or maybe Jonah and the whale. But you don't really have to I mean, take it seriously. And most clerics don't want to hear the Old Testament with its commands are relevant. They ignore that there are 1,050, get this, 1,050 active laws, statutes, and commands in the New Testament. I didn't count them up. 
Dake's reference Bible did. We can rightfully say that most of the New Testament derives its definitions, teachings, promises, and ideas from the Old Testament naturally. This is what Yahshua taught from. This is what his disciples taught from. They didn't have a New Testament. Paul hadn't come around yet. And his writings wouldn't come along for another 50 years at least. So we can say that the most of the New Testament derives from the teachings, promises, ideas of the Old Testament doctrine. So when Yahshua, a 12-year-old lad, goes to the synagogue, the temple, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. As a boy, he shut the mouths of the PhDs. He was a master of the verbal catch-22. They came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, there came to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. These are the numero unos, and they came to him by what authority? Do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? And Yahshua answered and said unto them, I will ask of you one question, and you answer me, and I'll answer your question. I love that. I love that. And they reasoned with themselves, saying, well, all right. So he says, the baptism of John, was it from heaven, or was it of man? No connection with anything from heaven. Answer me. So his gotcha question really got him confused. I thought, uh-oh, if we say, if we say from heaven, um, then why didn't, you, why didn't you believe what he taught? And if we say it's man, the people are going to swarm us because they like this guy. What are we going to do? He's got us in a pitcher. And so they said, we don't know. We don't know. We can't answer. So Yasha, they avoided the question entirely. So Yasha says, I'm not going to answer your question either. Brilliant, brilliant move. He liked to answer a question with a question, too, an offense, a very effective forensic uh, approach. At that time, Yasha went on the Sabbath day through the corn, meaning the grain, and his disciples were hungered and began to pluck ears of corn and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do that which is unlawful. What are they doing? They're breaking the Sabbath. His classic response was, to quote scripture, right? Which is the best advice we can use too. You can, if they want to argue, they can argue with the book. Like the one guy says, I didn't write the book. There's the authority. Answer that. Have you not read when David and his men were famished? Said they were hungry. They were more than hungry. They were, they were about weak and ready to keel over. He says, uh, they ate the showbread reserved for the priesthood. That's the old bread and the in the uh, temple that they would switch, o- switch over on Sabbath and put the new stuff out, then the priests were given that, that bread to eat. It's actually unleavened bread. Um, it had been totally out of character of David to walk up to the table of showbread, start breaking off pieces of fresh showbread meant for Yahweh as an offering to Yahweh and start throwing it out like, like, like he's at uh, Lambert's in Springfield, you know, throwing the, the rolls. That would have been completely out of character. We know he wouldn't have done something like that. But the leftover stuff, the priest would eat. He didn't see any problem with that. And 
really, I see the principle there. And when uh, Yahshua, you know, he says you can, uh, if the ox is in the ditch, you pull it out. Those extreme situations where a life is involved, where a life is saved, and basically applies to both those instances, I don't think Yahweh condemns that. But you don't do it every day. And as one guy said, you don't push the ox into the ditch either. If it happens, you do what you have to do at the time. But these guys would not. They would not ever lift a finger to help anybody, even in a life-threatening situation. Or how about those priests, Yahshua said, who work in the temple on the Sabbath, sacrificing hundreds, thousands of animals, back-breaking, hard, sweaty, messy work, stinky blood, and, and they did this all day long. And he says they don't profane the Sabbath. Why? Because it was in service to Yahweh. You know, when we're caught in a double Sabbath, one after another, in the assembly here, and, you know, we just had Sabbath, now tomorrow we got a high day, we do a little work just straightening up. I don't see anything wrong with that because it's in the service of Yahweh, right? We're preparing for another. No, we don't, we don't get out, uh, you know, the, uh, the pressure washer and, you know, really go at it. We just clean up a little bit and pick up a little bit, and there's nothing wrong with that. Another way Yahshua silenced his adversaries was, when he was tempted by Satan and the devil provoked him, what did he do? He quoted scripture. Even Satan quoted scripture when he said, you know, throw yourself down. And he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. But he left out that the angels would keep him in all his ways. He left that part out. All his ways. Because he wanted him to switch over to his ways. He's sly. He's tricky. You got to say, wait a minute. Hold on. You know? It's kind of like these guys that call up and want want your money. You know, they have ways to get your credit card. And ways to get your social security if you're not careful. They're slick. And you got to watch it. And so many of the elderly are, you know, they're so trusting. They'll go ahead and do it. We had a situation in my family that way. They gave the guy their PIN number on their debit card. Margie just bought, had a fit. She called the bank immediately, canceled that card. But they didn't think any, her folks didn't, you know, they thought they were trusting this guy to make a purchase or whatever. And, you know, if you're not aware of it, we've got to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. When Yahshua asks the Pharisees if they've ever read a certain scripture and then explains it to them, it's a taunt. Surely they've read it. They just haven't understood it correctly, or nor did they want to, if that's the case. It wasn't just mockery. It was strategy. The Pharisees confront Yahshua publicly as a power play intended to show their dominance by taunting him. He turns the tables around, assures that he's not intimidated by their charade. So I'm going to try to wrap this up real quick. When criticized, what do you do? They, someone attacks you for your beliefs, what do you do? Rather than fire back with a volley of your own, which is the natural human response, right? Get into an argument. Just take the high road. Take the high road. 
2 Timothy 2.23, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes, and the servant of the master shall, uh, must not strive, but shall be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient in weakness, instruction, those that oppose themselves, if Elohim peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth. So you've got to be meek, and you've got to say, here's what the scripture says. Here's what I try to go by. You can also question the motive like Joshua did in John 10. When they picked up stones to stone him, what did he do? He went way above. He says, wait a minute. Why would you do this? Why? I showed you many good works, and you're stoning me for it? I mean, are these guys nuts? So you call them on it. Ask for a reason. Why are you doing or saying this? Strip them of their posturing attitude, the facade, and force them to explain. Break the adversarial spell and approach them directly. Okay, what are you trying to do? And then make them explain. Because some people just want to fight. They just want to fight. But if you put on the gloves too, <laughs> you're just going to involve yourself deeper and deeper and you're not going to win because they're not there to win. I mean, they're not there to learn if they're there to fight. Well, if you're going nowhere, that's where we read Titus 3.10. A man after the first and second admonition, reject. If they're not going to listen, have a good one. Was every Pharisee terrible? No. There were sincere ones. There were ignorant ones, too, who were nothing like the image that's often presented. Did that stop Joshua from excoriating the whole lot as a group? No. He was an equal opportunity chastiser. Day after day, they proved that they were his rivals. So he met them on their terms. They tried to trap Joshua every day, hounding every day, everything he did, criticize. What does that sound like? <laughs> uh, politics, politics. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. This guy that was blind, he said, well, he put, this guy put clay on my eyes, and I, I can see. I, I wash, now I see. And then some of them were, this man is not of Elohim because he keeps not the Sabbath day. Oh, my goodness. My goodness, this guy's been blind forever. Yahshua heals him so he can see. Most wonderful thing that could probably happen to somebody. He's, he didn't keep the Sabbath day. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, you know, Yahshua had a point whenever he had to deal with people like this. And when he said, you know what? There just isn't an awful lot of hope. Well, I can go on and on. I'm going to cut this off. But, you know, Yahshua always stopped them dead in their tracks. And, you know, that's, that's the best way. Just quote scripture. Say, hey, this is what the Bible says. This is what I try to live by. Um, you see differently. Maybe someday, you know, maybe you'll see it my way. Maybe you won't. Each of us has to answer for himself. Each of us is... Is working out his own salvation, Yahweh says. In fact, in Zechariah 10, uh, 12, 10, he says of the Jews, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him 
as one mourns for his only son, and they shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So don't ever give up. Don't ever give up if your family, friends don't understand your, your faith. One day it'll happen if Yahweh calls them. It'll happen. So don't ever, you know, get upset and I just say, well, you know, someday I'll keep uh, hoping and praying that you'll see some light. So hope this maybe has helped a little bit. Hallelujah. Yahweh bless.